0: You grab a Bible, please, and your handout. Handout, we want to be on page 16. And might you turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Well done for persevering through the marathon. It is, uh, it's, these things are always quite hard work mentally to keep going, to keep tracking, but our prayer is always that they bear fruit in a whole lifetime of enjoyment of God through the Lord Jesus, love of his word, and therefore in service of him, and uh, bear fruit that lasts into eternity. So, well done for the, the slog, and I hope and pray that it all bears fruit in your life. I'm going to read from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 as we start In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Uh, keep that open. We're not going to work through it in detail, but we'll refer back to it as we go. It's not a bad place to start. Okay, we're going to start with you guys doing some stuff in groups. What I'm keen for you to discuss is where have we got to so far? Okay, so we said that the theme of God's kingdom can be understood as God's people. You'll remember this in God's place, living under God's rule, and enjoying God's blessing. And what I'm keen for you just to discuss is you uh, sit there in your, your little clusters Is where have we got to? Think of Jesus at the end of his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. What does plan kingdom look like at that moment when Jesus goes up to heaven? Where are we at in terms of people? Where are we at in terms of place? Where are we at in terms of rule? And where are we at in terms of blessing? And if you're thinking of God's overall plan for the world, that we saw patterned in creation uh, of God's people united in perfect relationship with one another uh, and living in God's place and enjoying unbroken relationship with God, what has, and we saw that that was going to be, uh, in, uh, through the, the promise in Genesis 12, that that was going to expand out in such a way that all of the nations of the world are blessed through the son of Abraham, where have we got to in the fulfillment of God's creation purposes as they were restated in the promise to Abraham and in the promise to David and in the, and in the, the promise of the serpent crusher? Do you see what I'm asking? Where have we got to by the end of the Gospels in God's plan for the universe? Okay, let's uh, try and uh, help one another with this stuff. So where have we got to? What has happened? What is yet to happen in God's big plan for the cosmos? What has happened? Let's start there. This is going excellently so far. God, keep going with your peas. So the kingdom was patterned, the kingdom perished, Yep, <laughs> it gets blurry from there. Who can help him out? Portrayed in history in the in Israel, and then when it all went uh, wrong again, it was prophesied in hope. That's exactly right. And then supremely, you've, anything else that's happened. So we've seen a bit. Th- this is kind of some of the backstory so far. What else has happened in uh, God's purposes for the world? I was going to say, there's a rather large thing that we're missing here. I'm glad that someone's, some of you are tracking with that. Jesus has come. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. Uh, he is the serpent crusher. And through his death on the cross, he secures blessing for all nations. And He, uh, through his resurrection, he's proclaimed as the king forever. And he uh, defeats uh, sin and Satan. Say, so, yep, Jesus has come. What hasn't happened yet? What? Yep, Pentecost hasn't happened. So the promise of the, the, the spirit being sent to live within you that we were promised in Ezekiel 36, that hasn't happened yet. The nations haven't come in. In fact, there aren't that many people who are in at all. If you're kind of counting at the end of the Gospels, there's, well, by Acts chapter 1, there's 70, we're told, I think, isn't there, believers in the world. So there's not a whole lot of people, and it's not very international. There's a, there's a couple of, uh, of people from the nations who have believed in Jesus during the Gospels, but we're not very many and we're not, we're not very diverse yet. Yep, thank you. Anything more? Anything that hasn't happened? Yeah, we're a bit confused as to what place means by this stage, aren't we? Because there was the physical land of Israel in the Old Testament that was a really big deal, and then Jesus was the perfect place of God, But we're now a little bit confused because the Romans are in charge and uh, there's nations all over the place with secular leaders. And so what does it mean for for God to have a place? It certainly doesn't at this stage feel like the Garden of Eden all over again. So we're kind of waiting for for that to happen as well. Yeah. Any more? What about God's rule? What does that look like at the moment? yeah so jesus is we know he is reigning at the right hand of the father but in terms of the the world over which he's reigning there's still quite a lot of rebellion against him and there's not that many people who are gladly submitting to his rule and so the final kind of Uh, not victory, but the final manifestation of his supreme rule over all things, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. That's yet to to happen as well. So one of the things, so the, the, the big question that we're left with at this stage is that if things were all centered on Jesus, but he's not here anymore, and if Uh, we're not yet at the end of the story in that God's people aren't yet from all of the nations in countless numbers uh, living gladly under the rule of Jesus in his perfect new place. How are we going to get from this point 70 timid, scared disciples locked away in an upper room because they were a bit scared about what's going to happen to them because they were friends with Jesus. How are we going to get from there to there? And that's where we're picking up the story this morning. So flick back if you would. I've actually put uh, Luke 24 on the sheet, so you may not have to turn there in your Bible. But let me read it to us. So the main section, the, the main kind of P that we're thinking about for the next few minutes is that God's kingdom is proclaimed in the gospel. It's proclaimed in the gospel. And what we want to see is the answer to the question, how are we going to get from here where Jesus is, is great, but it's not yet the, the, the end point. He's the fulfillment of everything that God has promised, but it's not yet fully consummated. How are we going to get from here to there? And the kingdom grows as the word is proclaimed in the power of the spirit. So uh, we mentioned Luke 24 back on day one, if you can remember that far ago. Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures. He said to them, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city, until you are clothed with power from on high. So the clear priority that is set for this next phase of salvation history is the proclamation uh, of the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The way that God's kingdom is going to grow in the world is as repentance and the forgiveness of sins are proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Phase one of salvation history, if you like, is complete, uh, that Jesus the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And then phase two of salvation history is going to be the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That is the clear priority, and it is clear right from the word go that this is not something that the disciples have the capacity to do within themselves. Uh, Behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father of my Father upon you, speaking of the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So uh, you've got this job that I'm giving you to go and do, We know that in Matthew it's described as go and make disciples of all nations. That's the way that the nations are going to be blessed as they become disciples of Jesus, as they recognize that he is their king, as they repent and believe in the same way that uh, Jesus himself told people to. Uh, The way that the blessing is going to reach all of the nations is through the proclamation of the repentance and forgiveness of sins. But that is not something the disciples can do. Nevertheless, along with the commission, God promises them the power that they need to do it. You will be clothed with power from on high, and that is what will enable you to do it. So if you glance over um, to Acts chapter 1. We see that the question of is this the end of the story, or how's the next phase of the story going to happen, was live in the minds of the disciples. So in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, when they'd come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So you see, they're thinking in kingdom language, and they're wanting this perfect place with a perfect king. Is it going to happen now, that we are going to be restored as a nation is probably what they're thinking about. Is it, can we get back to the, the glory days of Solomon? Is that going to happen now? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this priority of being witnesses to the Lord Jesus, those who testify to the world in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth, that is the thing that they have to do in this next phase of salvation history. But wonderfully, they're not doing it on their own. The power of the Spirit is going to be given to help them. And so this is um, why Pentecost is so exciting. The gift of the Spirit is given to each and every believer Whereas um, some of us were talking about this last night, whereas in the Old Testament, the spirit was given to particular people at particular times for particular tasks. And often, only temporarily, uh, Saul was given the spirit and then the spirit was taken away. Othniel was given the spirit so that he can design stuff for the temple. The judges have the spirit rush upon them so that they can go and deliver um, uh, the, uh, Israel at that moment from their oppressors. But it's not this universal d- democratic gift where each and every believer receives the spirit. It's only for particular people. The king has the spirit. Particular people, particular places, for particular times, but they get very excited that the gift of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, is the fulfilment of what Joel had prophesied. Um, we're going to be looking at Joel on Sunday evening, Sunday mornings, I think, in a couple of weeks' time. If you want to um, tune in for that, so the gift of the Spirit will be given so that everyone can, every believer can know God. And every believer can prophesy, or every believer can make God known. So here is the wonder of the gift of the Spirit. First you can know God, and then you can make God known. And that is uh, what they are set to do, the story of Acts. Um, we work through chapters 1 to 19 of Acts over the last um, couple of years at different points on Sundays. We're hoping to pick up, I think, next year at some point and try and do the rest of Acts. But the story of Acts is about the proclamation of the word, even in the, in the power of the Spirit, even in the face of great opposition, and the word triumphs and so the kingdom builds. And there are these little phrases that get repeated at different points in Acts Uh, Like chapter 6, verse 7, for example, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Um, I can't remember where all the others are. Is there one in 1225? Does that ring a bell? No. Anyway, so that keeps happening as the word goes out through Acts. But then just glance to the very end of uh, the book of Acts, and we'll see that it's going to take huge perseverance from God's people to keep going at this. So Saul is there, um, Paul is there at the very end of the book. Uh, We're told that he lived there two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So how's the kingdom going to be established? The kingdom's going to be established as the Spirit comes on the people of God and empowers them to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the fact that Jesus is Lord with boldness and without hindrance Uh, It's a task that uh, begins with the apostles, but as the Spirit comes upon everybody, so it is shared with everybody. And one of the great excitements of the book of Acts is the way that everybody gets involved in gossiping the gospel to people around them as the word advances and goes. So the proclamation of the word. And Jesus had told us that the word would be powerful to do his work. So I put some references from... Uh, Mark 4 there that some of you have been studying this year. The sower sows the word. Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirty-fold, sixty-fold, and a hundred-fold. Supreme power. It looks like there's lots of wastage. So, uh, seed falls on, other, on rocky ground and on the path and all of that. And, and weeds grow up and choke it. But there is some good soil. And as the seed of the word of the kingdom is proclaimed to people, so they receive it, they hold it fast. Says, um, it says in Luke's gospel, they bear fruit with patience, and so the seed multiplies thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. This is nothing less than the way that God is purposing to get from Jesus in heaven reigning not many disciples, not many nations to the end. Where there are a countless multitude from all of the nations gathered uh, around the throne and worshipping Jesus. Um, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Jesus goes on, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. You'll notice the, the fruitfulness. You'll notice the inevitability, and you'll notice the mystery. He hasn't got a clue what's happening. It just happens. And uh, you'll have found that if ever you're teaching the word of the word of God to people. Some people you think are uh, just fast asleep, and yet the Lord seems to bear fruit in their life. Other people you think are really eager, and then they seem to drift off. And uh, you're never quite sure what's happening. You're never in control of everything. It's not a program. It's God's work to grow the fruit. It's not our job to do it. We proclaim We pray that the Spirit will be at work, and inevitably, God produces fruit. And what I'm keen for us just to keep tying together is that this is the means by which the kingdom grows, by which God's eternal purpose is fulfilled. That is why it is so crucial that the people of God stay in tune with and cutting with the grain of the big thing that God is doing in the world. What he is doing in the world should set our priorities for the church, and that is uh, clearly set out here. So, some questions. Um, you guys look so asleep. I've got to say, it's marginally dispiriting. That's just the staff team. The rest of you um, will will get there. But uh, how does this shape our understanding of what God's doing in the world? How does it shape our priorities of the, the priorities of the church? And what does it say about the place of God's word? in mission or in evangelism. Okay, so three good questions for you to chew on back in your groups. Ging one another up. Otherwise we're gonna do some Pilates or something aerobics to wake ourselves up. Elise is gonna come and lead something in a minute if you don't wake up and answer the questions. Okay, great, go to it. Gang, here we go. Help me with these questions, then, please. What? How does this shape our understanding of what God is doing in the world today? I was hoping by Wednesday you'd kind of answer questions that are clearly not rhetorical. But let's uh, let's see how we go. Back group, Becca. Yep. That's what he's doing. The gospel is being proclaimed all over the world and bearing fruit all over the world. That is what God is doing in the world while we wait for the return of Jesus. How does that shape, how does what God is doing in the world shape the priorities of the church? Millie? Yeah, thank you. Thanks. So God is doing this big work in the world. Incredibly, he's given the church a role to play in it. He's brought us into it, and then uh, God's fellow workers, that kind of language or co-laborers is used in uh, the Bible to, to speak of us as what we are doing Playing a part in the fulfillment of God's purposes. It's His work, it's His Spirit who does it, it's not down to us, it's not mechanistic, we can't force it. But nevertheless, it is clarifying, isn't it, that if this is what God is doing, if the thing that God is doing is trying, is um, working sovereignly to expand His kingdom as people come to, as people repent and receive the forgiveness of sins and come under the rule of Jesus. So if he is working to grow his kingdom and we are to be in step with God, then the thing that we want to be doing is the thing that God is doing in the world, namely the proclamation of Christ so that the kingdom grows. It's clarifying because there's so many things, so many good things that we could be involved in, but God has uh, said, this is what I'm doing and so this is what I want you to be doing. It doesn't mean that it's an exclusive priority, but it definitely means that it's an absolutely core and central priority and that if we were to allow ourselves to be distracted from it, that would be a criminal thing. That would be a criminal thing. Uh, and it's key to see that this, therefore, isn't just, and I'd love to underline this and to knock it around if you want to, but this isn't just different churches can therefore have different priorities and that they're all equally okay, or that different Christian groups can have different priorities and that they're all equally okay, there is something that stands right at the heart of what God is doing in the world, that isn't about our personal preference for what we do, but is about the fulfillment of the plan that God had before the beginning of creation that was patterned in, uh, in Eden, that was promised again that Jesus came to fulfill and that we'll one day be perfected in the new creation. And this is how we play a part in it today. So God is setting it. It's not, a, it's not simply, oh, uh, we like doing this, so this is the thing that we do. This is, this is what God is doing, and therefore it is what we must do. What does it say about the place of God's word in mission or evangelism? Indeed, I would go, it should be the center and focus. Thanks for the helpful way of putting it, Sam. Indeed, I would go further and said in the negative, just to be absolutely clear. If God's word isn't there, then it's not mission or evangelism, because it cannot be. Uh, the, the evangelism mission being defined as the proclamation, as it is in Luke 24, as the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Lots of good things that we can do to love our neighbor, but it won't be the expansion of the kingdom unless we are proclaiming the king. So the kingdom does not advance as the structures of society are improved and made more just. The kingdom advances as the as repentance and the forgiveness of sins are, is proclaimed, and as people come to know Jesus for themselves, absolutely foundational for what we should be doing in the world. When? Yeah. Sure. What would I mean to elaborate on, uh, if you didn't hear it, on the word needs to be the central present in evangelism? It would mean that evangelism is declaring that Jesus is Lord from the scriptures to unbelievers. You could quibble about a definition of evangelism, but that's pretty much what it is, declaring that Jesus is Lord from the scriptures to unbelievers. The from the scriptures, but I hope the kind of the fact that it is the verbal declaration of the lordship of Jesus um, will be transparent from what we've seen already. The proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of the son of Abraham, the son of David, the one who's come in fulfillment of all of God's purposes. The from the scriptures would be, well, there are going to be multiple different um, types or not types um, Modes, I guess. If I'm sitting on a bus and having a conversation with someone, or if um, I see someone lying by the side of the street with blood spurting out of their femoral artery and I don't have a Bible on me, does that mean I can't say anything uh, about Jesus uh, to them? Because no, obviously. So from the scriptures will mean that the content of my message is shaped and controlled and defined by the scriptures even if I don't have a Bible open in front of me at that particular time. That said, um, and so you can think of scenarios where it would be more appropriate in a com- if a conversation comes up in a pub and someone's asking a particular question, that I'm just engaging them in conversation the first time. Nevertheless, it would be my aim and ambition for that person, if God is going to work through his word, that I don't... For the duration of my evangelistic endeavor with that person, just continue to have conversations with them, but to get the Bible open as soon as possible, um, so from the scriptures that the scriptures define the content and that they will have an increasingly central role in the the process as i as I go through it so i 'm not trying to just argue with people and vaguely in my head be referencing the Bible, but as soon as and uh, as i can i want to demonstrate that the authority for what i'm saying is coming from the scriptures um and th- let the word work in them it doesn't mean that i'll be preaching 30 minute monologue sermons every time um but it does mean that i'll be wanting the bible to be open one of my new favorite things in the world by the way is an app you can download on your phone uh, do um yeah, why not do it now? It's a really good thing to do. If you, can. And you may not have data here, but um, and you're probably not on the Wi-Fi. Anyway, when you get home to somewhere where you can do it free of charge, the Word 1-to-1, so the Word and then numerically 1-to-1, is an astonishingly good app uh, where it takes you through the whole of John's Gospel in, a, in bunches of studies. The text of, of John's Gospel is there. There's some questions, and then there's some explanation. So you're not asking questions that they're meant to invent the answer to in the way that we would normally do a life group study, but the the questions and the answers are there on the page in front of you, and it enables you to meet up with a mate. Did I just diss life groups unintentionally? Um, I didn't mean to. They're great. Genuinely, genuinely, life-changingly great. But it, they can be intimidating for an unbeliever to sit there who's not used to reading text or reading the Bible. If you sit there and say, what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? And they don't feel that they know the answer. I used to meet up with a guy who ran, ran a university. That was his job. He ran a university. Uh, and I've met up with a lawyer as well who spends his whole life examining texts. But if I ask them a question in a, in a one-to-one Bible study... In both cases, they, they froze, and they had no concept of how to get the answer from the passage that was in front of them. So the word one-to-one is brilliant because it tells you the answers, and all it tells you to do is you read it together. They can download it on their phone as well. Uh, it goes through John's Gospel in about 28 little sessions, all of the verses there. You read it, and then you say, what do you make of that? It's brilliant. And uh, the guys who wrote it say, it's not about being a Bible teacher, it's about being a Bible sharer. So uh, we're going slightly off topic here. But that is uh, my answer to your question. Uh, When Through the scriptures, get it open as soon as you can. It's the authority, and it shows that it's not just word games, you fighting against them to try and get um, intellectual supremacy in an argument. But you're saying, this is what it says. What do you make of it? How are you responding to the guy that we meet here in the, the Bible? Okay, no, it's uh, entirely my fault for not being concise, uh, I suspect. Um, But that would be the answer. If the Bible isn't there, in some sense, as we've just said, with appropriate caveats, it's not evangelism. So why would we think that it was? Okay, let's uh, turn over the page, please, to page 17. And just to see the same thing, in a way, from a, a different lens. So Colossians 1, 5 to... 7. So, of this you've heard before, the the hope in heaven, Uh, of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, says Paul, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love In the spirit, so Epaphras rocks up, uh, not an apostle, Epaphras rocks up in Colossae. What does he do? He tells them about the hope of heaven, he tells them about grace, he tells them about repentance, the forgiveness of sins, about the fact that Jesus is Lord, and they came to believe it. How is that them coming to belief described theologically? Glance down to verses 12 and 13. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we said the way that the kingdom is going to grow is as the word of uh, the kingdom is preached. That's true. But what we see here is an incredible thing. Because we were in Adam... We were in the realm of darkness, in the realm of sin, in the realm of death. That was kind of the kingdom of Satan, if you like, of the world. That was our defining center. That's where we were, and we couldn't get ourselves out of it. But you believe this gospel of grace about Jesus, and the most incredible thing happens. You're transferred from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. So where do you find God's kingdom in the world today? You find it in every person who believes in Jesus as Lord, who's received his forgiveness. So the kingdom grows as people hear the gospel and repent and believe. So in that sense, we are the kingdom. If we have believed in Jesus, the King, Colossians entered the kingdom of the Son. And once you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, you never get untransferred. It's a brilliant thing. You are now secure in the kingdom of the Son. And that is why all of the promises of God, the place that they're fulfilled now, is not in a physical nation state but in uh, the church. The promises of God are being fulfilled in the church. There's this lovely verse in 1 Corinthians 10 uh, that helps us to understand how we should read the Old Testament. It says, these things happened to them as an example, speaking of uh, stuff like the wilderness generation we were looking at yesterday, but they were written down for our instruction. And then it says, for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So the fulfillment of all of everything that God was promising through the Old Testament happens now in and upon us as New Testament Christians. It is a wonderful, wonderful privilege We can sometimes think uh, of ourselves as the the minority, and numerically we are in in our country. We can think that it's just like a private thing. Some of us happen to believe in Jesus. But what we are is the ones upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. We are in the kingdom that is the fulfillment of the plans that the creator of the universe has for his entire cosmos. That is where we stand, uh, we all have our own story of how we came to know the Lord, and it's wonderful when we hear them from one another. But the big story that's going on is God's story, and wonderfully, he's reached down from heaven as you heard the gospel and pulled you into it and made you a part of the big thing that he's doing in the universe. You are in the kingdom. So uh, we are God's people, just to run through this. Um, Revelation one, two, Timothy two, twelve talks about us, uh, the believers, as being uh, a kingdom. It says in two Timothy two, twelve that we shall reign with Him. Revelation one, six. Uh, if you flick there, is again astonishing. We're, we know that we're the minority of people in our age. We feel as though we don't have much power as those who are believers. We're, we're passive recipients of uh, new bits of legislation that the government throw out that uh, blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. But look, to him, 1 uh, 5, new paragraph in Revelation 1 on page 1028 to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So we are the kingdom of God, and we will reign with Jesus forevermore. As he reigns at the right hand of the Father, so we will reign with him. We are in Christ. It's one of the favorite ways that the New Testament talks about the believer, not just in his kingdom, but in him 70 plus times in the New Testament. We're sons and heirs of God. Sons not in the sense of... um, son in the sense of heir. Um, That's why even in the the Ephesians 1 reading that we had, it didn't didn't say we're sons and daughters because in the first century, because of primogeniture kind of rulings, daughters couldn't inherit. But we are made God's sons in the sense that we are heirs to his kingdom. And whether we're uh, boys or girls, we will all share in his inheritance uh, in an equal way. We are the new Israel. If you glance at um, 1 Peter 2, we said that Jesus is the true people of God, he is, Um, but then as we come to believe in him, so we become the new Israel. So in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why has God done it? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and because we've received the Spirit, who enables us to know God. We are prophets in the sense that we, we prophesy, we declare, we make Jesus known to the world. Not in the sense of telling the future, but in the sense of proclaiming the reality of the kingly rule of Jesus, every one of us. We are God's place. So we said that we talked about the land, the temple, the tab- Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, uh, the, the land we talked about Jesus being the true temple. Incredibly, Christians now become the temple, and the Bible explains this uh, both individually and corporately. So in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, 19, uh, when trying to encourage uh, the Corinthians to be sexually pure, Paul says of them, or do you not know that your body is a temple... Of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Uh, I know we can go, oh, yeah, my body's a temple thing. So that's why I drink smoothies and stuff. That's not the thing that is uh, uh, in view here. Is that what you do if your body's a temple? I don't, I don't know. You know more about that than I do. But that's not what's in view here. Here, your body's a temple in the sense that God dwells within you. Jesus speaks of himself coming and making his home within us. Speaks of the father dwelling within us in John 14 and 15. Speaks of the spirit residing within us. We are the temple of God. We are in that sense the place that people can meet with God We are in that sense the place, and only in a very derivative sense, in the place that people can come for forgiveness in that we can tell them about the one who can forgive them. Uh, And if we declare that someone's sins are forgiven, as John 20 says, they are forgiven because we can say to them with absolute authority of God himself, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as it says in 1 John 1. So people can meet with God through us. And because God dwells within us, of course, we don't want to do anything that's impure. You don't want to take impure stuff into the temple. You don't want to drag God's temple into impurity. You want to live a pure life. Of course you do, because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what's true of us individually is also true of us collectively as a church, So in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, uh, Paul talks about, "...with fellow citizens, with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God doesn't just dwell in us individually as Christians, but corporately together in our local churches. We are the temple of God. Again, the place that people can come and meet with God, the place that people can receive forgiveness from God as we proclaim him, the place that Embodies God's rule in the world. The place where God's word is, as I used the word yesterday, re-emplaced at the center of the people's life, individually and corporately. Just like in Eden, just like it was meant to be in Israel, God's people living together as God's place under God's rule because Jesus is our master listening to and responding rightly to his word and enjoying God's blessing. And the reason um, that we, uh, the God's rule stuff we talk about regularly, let me just skip over to we enjoy God's blessing. The reason I read Ephesians is that now in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are the blessed people of God He chooses to bless us, to include us in his kingdom, to the praise of his own glorious grace, so that more and more people and so that more and more principalities and powers can look at us and say, What a gracious God he is, that he would save people like that and bless them. What a great king Jesus is, what a great savior he is. How awesome are the plans of God. That's the purpose. we have as a church and so we proclaim the promise of god's blessing to anyone and everyone at every available opportunity peter on the day of pentecost the spirit's just been given what are you meant to do he's proclaimed that jesus is lord it's interesting isn't it the giving of the spirit results in a sermon about the lordship of jesus and peter says they say what should we do And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. An echo of Genesis 12. This promise is for you, it's for your children, and ultimately will reach to the nations. Now you believe in Jesus, you receive the Spirit. This promise is for you, it's for your kids, if you ever have any. And it is for all those who are far off, as many as will believe in Jesus. So I I want to underline that that being a Christian, being a part of the church, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is not just a lifestyle choice that you have made. It is God working in you to include you in his eternal plans and purposes. You are a child of blessing. God loves you and has blessed you and will never let you go. And he has a work for us to do in the world as we glorify him in our body and as we proclaim his name to the nations. That said, we know that, I've got 15 minutes left. That said, we know that we have not got to the end of the story. As wonderful as it is to be a Christian now, it is not yet God's people living in God's perfect place, perfectly under God's rule and enjoying his blessing. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know all too painfully that sin is still a problem, We know that Christians still die. We know that the devil, though he was defeated at the cross, has not yet been destroyed. He prowls around like a roaring lion, says one Peter five, looking for someone to devour. And so though we know the end of the story, it's not yet happened. And that's why we flip over the page to page 18, the final page of the handout. God's kingdom is perfected in the new creation. And we're looking forward to the day when Jesus returns and He to judge all that is evil and to establish his forever kingdom. And you can see it there on the sheet. It will be God's forever place. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is a, a renewed creation. The word new again, a bit like the covenant one we saw in Jeremiah 31 can mean either brand new or can mean renewed. And for my money, for reasons we could go into at greater length, it will be this world that is perfected, all of the dross consumed by fire, taken out of it, and this will be the new creation, a new city. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, dressed as a bride adorned for her husband. I love that Revelation twenty one twenty two says... I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You don't need a temple, because the whole thing is a temple. God, We are there so closely connected with God already. It's better than Eden and different to Eden. So the, the description in 18 to 21 of Revelation 21 sounds a lot like Eden, Again, if you were to compare the language, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third agate, fourth emerald, fifth onyx, sixth carnelian, seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were made from 12 pearls and each of the gates was made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass it's just lavish beauty and wonder better than and different to eden so it will be god's forever place we will be god's forever people said verse 3 Um of Revelation twenty one. I said this could be a good theme for a whole Bible overview, and here is the fulfilment of it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So like it was back in Eden, when God would walk around in the cool of the day with Adam, before they were banished, and then in the temple when God dwelt there as their God and then in Jesus, the living temple. And now he dwells within us by his spirit and in our churches. And then he, we will be finally with him. The dwelling place of God will be with us once again. And uh, we will be his people and he will be our God. And we will live forever under God's rule. Um, so the angel, 22 verse one, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Don't think of the the, the new creation as a place of ultimate self-indulgence. Jesus is still king. That would be so boring after a while. If you ever read um, Julian Barnes, the history of the world in nine and a half chapters, he has a chapter on the new creation uh, and he uh, kind of posits this thing where you can do whatever you want to do in heaven. And uh, he runs through a bunch of stuff. So someone goes, I'm going to take up sport. And so they take up golf. And to start with, they're not very good. And then they get better and better and better at it. So that every time they ever play golf, they get a hole-in-one on every hole, every single time. And it becomes boring. So they give up golf. And then they start... Uh, saying, okay, I'll get better at tennis. And then every time they hit a shot, it's a perfect winner. So then that gets a bit boring. And then they say, well, I'm going to meet some famous people. So they start having dinner with all of the famous people that they want to. And then they get bored of that eventually. And then they say, oh, well, maybe I need more sex. And so I can have sex with this beautiful woman and then this beautiful woman and then this beautiful woman and then all of these beautiful women together. And eventually that gets boring. And so eventually every single person votes themselves out of existence because they are so utterly bored with self-indulgence. What will actually happen in the new creation is that Jesus is on the throne, and we are loving and serving him and delighting in him, because the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit is the only one who is sufficiently glorious that he can captivate our attention and our affections for all eternity. You won't find fulfillment by chasing it elsewhere, You'll find it in him. We will be under uh, God's rule. We'll praise and serve him forever. Sin will be gone. Temptation will be gone. Isn't it brilliant? The serpent, blessed is um, chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever so no, no more of the devil's lies, no more temptation, no more of that kind of inbuilt instinct that we've inherited and run with that says our good is best achieved away from God. Uh, no more of the denial of judgment that means that we think we can sin and get away with it that we saw back in Genesis because the serpent will be in the lake of burning sulfur, will be free from him and from temptation and from his lies forever and ever. There will be no more sin. We will be praising him and we will be experiencing his blessing. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. 22 verse 2, through the middle of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Back to true life, the tree of life that was there in Eden, that we were banished from in Genesis 3, there again. And we're a, the healing of the nations and the blessing of the nations is achieved. And the blessing of God will have reached all of the nations of the world. By its light, chapter 21, verse 24, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And so you have this great picture of, in Revelation 7, of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, "'Who are these clothed in white robes "'and from where have they come?' I said to him, "'Sir, you know.'" He said, "'These are the ones coming out "'of the great tribulation. "'They've washed their robes and made them white "'in the blood of the Lamb. "'Therefore they are before the throne of God, "'and they serve him day and night in his temple. "'And he who sits on the throne "'will shelter them with his presence. "'And they shall hunger no more, "'neither thirst any more. "'The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat.' for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Isaiah 35, verse 10, speaks of everlasting joy. And that is the fulfillment, the ultimate consummation of everything that God planned before the beginning of the creation, that he patterned in Eden, went pear-shaped in the fall, was promised, was portrayed, was prophesied, was present in Jesus, is experienced and proclaimed now in the church and will be perfected on that day. And if that's where we're going and that's what it's going to be like, that should shape our present in like nothing else. So some final questions for you for the last five minutes. How should all that we've learned shape our response to Jesus? How should this glorious hope shape our life now? And how should it shape our prayers?